Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain and we are on day 2254 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. We are continuing the messages I delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This is the 12th of a 25-week message series covering the book of Hebrews. This message is titled, A Perfect and Permanent Priesthood. I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. Now we continued our extended series three weeks ago through the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. Our focus was on Melchizedek and the Messiah. We saw that the Messiah was the priest and the king in the order of Melchizedek. And in doing so, we noticed that the Levitical priesthood was replaced by our great high priest, Jesus Christ. And this week, our comparison will continue between the Levitical and the Melchizedekian priesthood. Jesus Christ established a perfect and permanent priesthood as our great high priest. And our passage today is Hebrews chapter 7, verses 18 through 28, and it's on page 1869 in your pew Bibles, if you want to follow along. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was, with, it was not without an oath. Other priests, be, others became priests without an oath, but he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of his oath, Jesus had become the guarantor of a better covenant. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a great high priest meets our needs, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he did not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he, was, when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness. But the oath, by the oath, which became after the law, appointed the Son, who was made perfect forever. Now, sometimes we can't tell the quality of something without comparing it with something else. Now, if you look at this pellet slip up here, it feels soft and comfortable. It would be worth sleeping on. It's probably about a 200 thread count. So if I just had this to compare, I would think, well, that's a pretty comfortable pellet slip. But when I compare it with a satin or a silk pellet slip and the softness that it has on it, there's just no comparison. In comparing the two, we can see the difference. The same would go if you had a large screen TV and it was maybe a decent resolution and you said, man, that's a crisp resolution. But if you set it beside a high definition 4HD TV and you can see the crisp differences, you would know that one is superior to the other. Or take a pair of glasses, for instance. You might see clearly out of those and say, well, I can see pretty clearly from these when I put those on until the optometrist changes it out to a prescription that fits your prescription much better. And then everything becomes much more crisp and clear as you can see even better. And that's what we're going to compare today. The difference is 
In the first part of Hebrews 7, the writer of Hebrews asserts the priesthood of Jesus Christ, which was established in the order of Melchizedek, is superior to that of Aaron and the Levites. The second part of Hebrews 7, which we'll cover today, builds on that foundation, pointing out that Jesus, our perfect and permanent high priest, greatly exceeds the other Levitical priesthood. It's like comparing these two palace slips together. Because one is so much softer and more comfortable than another. Christ Melchizedekian priesthood was far superior to that of the Levites. The author accomplishes by demonstrating the superior priesthood of Christ by placing it beside the Levitical priesthood. And when he does, the superior far outshines the inferior in its character because Christ in his character and his permanence and his work is far superior. Only through the superior priesthood of Christ can a person indeed draw near to God. In verses 17 and, or 18 and 19, as we start out, to a large degree, this first comparison in those two verses sets a pattern for the rest of the passage today. It establishes a profound implication and practical application of the superiority of Christ's priesthood over the priesthood of the Old Testament. Now, in the original Greek text, there was two words that were commonly used, or two phrases, and it was men and day. And it translated, on the one hand... But then on the other hand, now if you've ever watched Fiddler on the Roof, it's one of my favorite musicals of all time, you'll see a portrayal of that. And John's going to have a clip here about the father of the oldest daughter and how he compares on one hand and then on the other. I promise you, Reptavia, your daughter will not starve. He's beginning to talk like a man. On the other hand, what kind of a match would that be? With a poor tailor? On the other hand, he's an honest hard worker. But on the other hand, he has absolutely nothing. Things could never get worse for him. They could only get better. <laughs> they gave each other a pledge. Unheard of. Absurd. They gave each other a pledge. Unthinkable. But look at my daughter's face. She loves him. She wants him. And look at my daughter's eyes. So hopeful. Tradition! Well, children, when shall we make the wedding? Thank you, Papa! Reptavia, you won't be sorry. You won't be sorry. I won't be sorry. I'm sorry already. <laughs> Thank you, Papa. Thank you, Papa. Okay. Thanks, John. I appreciate that scene in the whole story, Fiddler on the Roof. 
It's one of my favorites. And we saw, he says, on one hand, he co she comes from a poor family. And he was hoping that she would marry somebody much more wealthy. But on the other hand, she can't do any worse than what she is now. And that's the comparison in today's passage. On the one hand, the author argues that the law was set aside because of its weakness and its uselessness at providing the genuine access to God and a means of spiritual growth in our lives. In verse 18, it says, for the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, the installation of Christ's priesthood in verse 19 says, a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. It is his access to God, not the accumulation of any type of religious merit that transforms us from the inside out. Nothing can be more profoundly practical to lost sinners like us. Knowing God and having a personal relationship with him are the hallmarks of our true religion. Therefore, fallen humanity needs, humanity needs a reliable bridge to span that chasm that separates man from God. And that, that bridge is Jesus Christ. As we're told in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, for there is one God and one mediator, that God-man Christ Jesus, that reconciles God with humanity. Here's what I found. <laughs> Through him we have access to God. As Jesus told his disciples in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. But wasn't the Old Testament function of the priesthood to bring people to God? Weren't they, in a sense, a bridge in the relationship to God? Didn't they point the way to true worshipers and return the people of Israel back to their creator, their attention to the creator? to mediate his blessings? Aren't the Old Testament priesthood and the priesthood of Jesus Christ just two different bridges leading to the same point? As Paul's mom would often say, isn't it just six of one and half a dozen of another? But the author of Hebrews answers this lingering question with the resounding, no, it's not the same. Not only are the priesthood not the same, but Christ's priesthood is absolutely superior to that of the Levites. It's like two, comparing two things together that has a stark difference between those two. As we move on to verses 20 through 25, the author continues his study in contrast and comparing the Levitical priesthood under Moses in that system with Jesus, our great high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. And there's four significant comparisons that stand out. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 21, the author emphasizes the fact that Christ's Melchizedekian priesthood was established by a divine oath. And that oath was found in Psalm 110, verse 4, which we covered extensively in our last lesson. In light of this, Jesus Christ had become the guarantor of a covenantal arrangement that was superior to the Moses covenant. In verse 22, it emphasizes the key word in this verse is guarantee, which conveys the meaning of both a guarantor and a mediator. And the Greek word for this is injiros. And it's used for someone who puts up bail for someone charged with an offense. 
That person guarantees that the one accused will appear, appear at the trial. And because Christ is superior in his priesthood, those who place their trust in him are guaranteed of a better salvation in him. And just like the story of Fiddler on the Roof, where he says, on one hand, but on the other, if you look at your bulletin insert on the side, it says a perfect and permanent priesthood. Let's compare the Levitical priesthood with that of our great high priest, Jesus Christ. So follow along with me. On the one hand, the Levitical priests held the offices because of their physical descent, not by a divine oath in verse 21. But on the other hand, Jesus' Melchizedek priesthood was established by a divine oath, which was listed in Psalm 110, verse 4, and also Hebrews 21, 7.21. On the one hand, the Levitical priests were temporary custodians of an inferior covenant that would eventually expire in verse 22. On the other hand, Jesus was a personal guarantee of a better covenant that could never expire in verse 22. On the one hand, the Levitical priest ministry was temporary because death prevented those priests from continuing on in verse 23. But on the other hand, Jesus' high priestly ministry is permanent because he conquered death and lives forever in verse 24. On the one hand, the Levitical priest ministry could only provide temporal fellowship with God under an old covenant, not eternal salvation in verse 25. But on the other hand, Jesus' ministry of heavenly intercession enables him to provide eternal salvation to God to come, who come to God through him. And with that graphic that's at the bottom of that page there, on the other hand, there is a setting aside of the formal commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. And we can see that the law was X'd out and the cross of Christ now takes preeminence. Thus, Jesus' permanent priesthood means that we who have come to the Father through the mediating work of the Son of God are saved forever. Because he lives forever, we can live forever. And that's how we get our eternal salvation. We sinful mortals are in perpetual need of the mediating work of our high priest, Jesus Christ. That perpetual, that perfect high priest. What a great reminder of our eternal security that we have in Jesus Christ. As verse 25 tells us, therefore, he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. But in light of verse 25, how were the Old Testament persons saved? You might say, well, were they saved in the Old Testament? In comparison of Christ's eternal priesthood with the Levites under the Old Covenant, it raises a crucial question. How were those Old Testament saints saved? Were they saved by obeying the law and sacrificing animals? Did that old system save them temporarily until Christ could save them permanently? Were there two ways of salvation? One through an imperfect sacrificial system and the other through Christ's sacrifice. Now some people mistakenly believe that the Old Testament saints were saved and bound for heaven by obeying the law and seeking forgiveness through animal sacrifices when they fell short. However, Hebrews makes it clear that only Christ, in verse 25, is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. And furthermore, as we get to chapter 10 of Hebrews in a few weeks, we will see a verse, it's, verse 4, it says categorically, for it is not possible for the blood of bulls and for goats to take away sin. 
So that old sacrificial system did not save them eternally. Christians need to understand that under the Mosaic Covenant, with its laws and sacrificial systems, God's never promised eternal life in heaven for those who are faithful to that covenant. Instead, he promised Israel earthly and temporal salvation or blessings. God said to Israel in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, Now if you will obey me and keep my covenants, you will be my own special treasure among all the people on the earth. For all the earth belongs to me. And you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is the message that you must give the people of Israel. And in Deuteronomy chapter 28, where he talks about blessings and cursings, in verses 1 and 2, Moses declares, If you will fully obey the Lord your God and carefully keep all his commandments that I am giving you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the world, and you will experience all these blessings if you obey the Lord your God. But the blessings for obedience listed there was for a safe, secure, bountiful life in the promised land. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 3 through 14. And not a single line in that chapter of 28 offers eternal salvation to, in heaven for their obedience to that law. And likewise, the list of curses resulting for the breaking of the covenant contains no threat of eternal punishment in hell, only temporal judgments here on earth, including death and destruction in Deuteronomy 28, verses 15 through 68. And just as the law gave no provision for eternal salvation in heaven, neither did the sacrificial system provide an eternal payment for their sins. Instead, the forgiveness is gained through a sacrificial system that was only earthly and temporal for them while they were in that promised land. Under the old covenant, disobedience to the law would bring temporal curses instead of blessings if they broke the law. However, God provided a means for temporal forgiveness through that sacrificial system if it was offered in sincerity and repentance. But the result would not, it would not result in eternal salvation of the soul, but turning away for temporal judgments that would come upon Israel for their disobedience. So we come back to that question. How then were the Old Testament eternally saved? How were they born again? How were they sealed for heaven? Well, the Bible clarifies that eternal salvation always comes by grace through faith. Romans chapter 4. Eternal salvation is never earned by works, by obeying the law. Galatians chapter 2 verse 21. Or by animal sacrifices in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 4. Rather, eternal salvation has always been based on the atoning work of Christ, as we're told in Romans chapter 3. You might scratch your head, well, how were they saved then? This was before Christ came. Of course, the Old Testament saints under that Mosaic covenant didn't have the complete narrative that we have that came with the revelation of Jesus Christ, his incarnation, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. However, they did have the prophecies. They did have the promises. They did have a picture of the ultimate salvation that would come through a future Messiah. And they could therefore exercise simple faith in that future Messiah, a childlike faith in God's goodness, in his mercy, in his promises. And by putting their faith in that, they were eternally saved. Salvation, their salvation like ours, is dependent on our faith in the revelation that we've been given. 
Those Old Testament saints had a partial revelation. And if they put their trust and faith in that partial revelation that they had at that point in time in, their, in history, then they would be saved. They would trust in God through that faith. It would be like somebody with impaired mental state, for instance, or maybe a, a tribe of people who have never had God's word given to them. How are they saved? They're saved through the revelation that they've been given. In Romans, it says that by the glory of God in the heavens, God is revealed. And if you put that faith and trust in that revelation that God has given them at that time, then they would be saved. As theologian Charles Ryer famously put it, says the basis of salvation in every age is the death of Christ. The requirements for salvation in every age is faith. The object of faith in every age is God. But the content of the faith changes with various dispensations. Those who have not given the Bible, the full scripture, that understand Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and ascension as we do, are held accountable for the faith, for the revelation that they've been given, and putting their faith in an almighty God with that revelation. Salvation provided under the old priesthood related to the restoration of a covenantal fellowship. That is, if they obeyed the law, they would receive a temporal blessing in the promised land. That blessing could be bountiful crops, freedom from sickness and disease, protection from their enemies, and provisions in that land, the promised land. However, the salvation provided by Christ under the eternal priesthood relates to a fancy $2 words. Those words are justification, just as if we've never sinned. Sanctification, being made holy before a holy God when we're not truly holy ourselves. And glorification, one day we will receive an immortal body and be in God's presence forever, including that resurrection and eternal life with God. One receives eternal salvation by simply exercising faith in the person and work of Christ. In verses 26 through 28, gives us three additional reasons for Christ's superiority over the Old Testament priesthood. And it's all related to that person and that work of Christ. First, Jesus is superior because he is sinless. In verse 26, that is, he's superior in his very nature. It says that he was one who was holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted in the heavens, above the heavens. Not a single member of that Levitical priesthood could claim such a status. Another commentator by the last name of Brown wrote, the former priesthood stressed the importance of outward cleansing and ritual purity, but Christ's priesthood is effective because of his inward moral purity and his sinless perfection. Our salvation is not based on us. It's based on Christ and his purity and his perfection. It's been that way from the beginning of time. Second reason is Jesus is superior because his sacrifice was offered once for all. In verse 27, that is his superior in his person and his work as our high priest, being perfectly holy, he didn't need to offer animal sacrifices for his own purification and for that purification of the people. In verse 27, it says he sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Jesus Christ himself was the sacrifice. He stretched himself over the altar and offered his life as an atonement for our sins. 
No other priest could have taken that role as the sacrificial lamb. The one, each one of them were sinful, and they needed to offer a sacrifice for themselves first. Jesus alone is the last prophet John the baptizer proclaimed in John chapter 1, verse 29, was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And thirdly, Jesus is superior because he is the perfect and powerful Son of God. In verse 28, the law of Moses appointed imperfect weak men as priests in a temporary system, putting their place of coming before a great high priest. In the meantime, though, through the lips of David in Psalm chapter 110, verse 4, God made an oath that the Messiah would come with a superior priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. That Messiah would be no mere human, no sinful human, but the perfect, powerful Son of God. And he would establish a permanent priesthood, Jesus, our great high priest. So what's the application of our passage today? It's on the other side of your bulletin insert. The application of Hebrews chapter 7, verses 18 through 28, is Christ is our permanent, perfect pontifex. And pontifex means bridge builder. Now, in the pagan ancient Rome, the priests who served as mediator between their gods and the people were given the title of pontifex. Now, though the original Latin word pontifex is shrouded in the midst of ancient history, Many believe it came from two Latin words, pon, which means bridge, and facere, which means to make, or to make a bridge. The notion has been related to the rites and sacrifices in the pagan ancient Roman days. Many of the sacrifices were offered on a literal bridge because it was a bridge between their gods and humans. Now, others interpret the root word, root word of Pontifex as referring to a priestly function of creating a bridge between God and people. Though the Roman Catholic Church has pasted the label Pontifex Maximus, or the supreme bridge builder on the Pope, this title correctly belongs to Christ and Christ alone. Only he can be the supreme bridge builder. Apart from Christ, there is no need for a priesthood the pontifex, the bridge maker between God and man, because only Christ can fulfill that role. Now, if you look at the picture at the bottom of the bulletin insert on that side, you'll see there's a chasm of sin that separates us from God. But what crosses that, what is a bridge between us and God through that chasm of sin is the cross of Christ. He provided the bridge that we need to go before God. If we're separated from God by what seems to be an unbridgeable chasm of sin, Christ alone is that good news that we need. We can reach God and know God through Jesus Christ, who is our permanent pontifex, our permanent bridge maker. He is the perfect high priest, the bridge over those boiling waters of sin that separates us from the heavenly shores of a holy God. The idea of Christ as our bridge between sinful humanity and our holy God has become a helpful way for us to picture in our own minds of communicating that gospel with others, that gospel salvation for ourselves. And then as we share, as we build God's kingdom here on earth, as a reminder for us, as well as a motivation for us to share that simple good news with others. Let us consider five ways, which I've listed in the bulletin insert today, which Christ serves as our permanent, perfect bridge builder. 
The first one is all humanity is separated from God and each person is under the judgment because of sin. That's the basis of why we need a bridge. The second is many statements made about Jesus, made by Jesus about eternal life indicated there's just one solution to the separation from God. That one solution is that perfect pontifex. Third, we as humans attempt to build our own bridges to God. However, Jesus declared he alone is the way, as we read in John chapter 14, verse 6. Fourth, Jesus is the way because of who he is. He's God and man. He's an unblemished lamb. He rose from the dead. He died. He, he alone did what was necessary. He died and rose from the dead. And fifth, Jesus calls us to respond to this message, to hear and to believe. By simple faith, we receive this message, John chapter 1, verse 12. We are born again by God's spirit, John 3, 3. And whoever believes in him will be saved in that best known of all verses, John 3, 16. So the question comes to each of us now. Do you know God through Jesus Christ as our only perfect pontifex? Or have you tried to build your own bridge to God through good works, through rites, through rituals, through church membership, through other man-made means? If you know him, are you drawing nearer to God because of that bridge, that exclusive way to God? Or have you resorted to flimsy religion built on a list of do's and don'ts, self-righteous works and legalistic rituals? And finally, if you know that good news about that perfect pontifex, if you truly are drawing near to him, are you sharing that good news with others? Are you taking the hand of one who's on the other side of that chasm and walking them through that perfect plan of God that's listed here in Hebrews chapter 7 to get them across that chasm to a holy God? The only way is through Jesus Christ. Only through Christ can we reach God and know him. Speaking to his disciples, as I read before, John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. He alone is our Pontifex Maximus, that great bridge builder, our supreme bridge builder. He's the perfect, he's the permanent high priest, and he grants us eternal access to God. And the great thing about that is we can boldly go before God's throne now, because Jesus Christ is our perfect pontifex. We don't have to go through an earthly priest. We don't have to do rituals. We can stand before the very throne of God because of Jesus Christ. And that's what Hebrews chapter 7 covers with the superiority, comparing the two between the Levitical priesthood and the priesthood of Jesus Christ, our great high priest. There is no comparison. There's only one way. And next week, we'll continue our adventure through the book of Hebrews as we turn from Christ as being our perfect high priest to his promises that he's brought us in a lesson titled, Christ's Covenant, New and Never Obsolete. So I'd encourage you to read chapter 8, verses 1 through 13 in preparation for next week. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you. We thank you for your love to us. We thank you that Jesus Christ is our Pontifex Maximus, our supreme bridge builder who gives us access before your throne, God, as we can come boldly before you 
knowing that our sins are forgiven, knowing that through Christ you see us as perfect. You don't see our sins because you've forgiven our sins through Jesus Christ. We give you the praise and the honor of glory for our Supreme High Priest. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's Word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend, as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously, lead with integrity, and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, reminding you to keep moving forward, enjoy your journey, and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's Word.